1985. I'm in my final year at high school, 17. And, you know, I'm sweating about final year exams and whether I'll ever figure out how to ask a girl out. And I spend my lunch times playing rugby or soccer or Aussie rules on the school grounds. Basically, I'm 17 and I'm just having a good life. I'm having fun. There was very little then that hinted at who I've become now. I wasn't that interested in personal growth, particularly. I wasn't interested in business or entrepreneurship. My favorite class was literature, and I liked explaining ideas about books. So maybe there was a hint of something there. But no one then would call me a writer, and I didn't write not things outside the essays that were due the next day. During one of the assemblies, where all the school has got together, one of my classmates came on stage. He brought his cello out, and it was announced that he'd won some big prize. Now, I barely knew what a cello was, so, you know, whatever. But then he played it. And while I didn't really understand the music, I remember thinking, oh, <laughs> oh, this is what it means to be really, really, really good at something. And just how extraordinary and how rare it is to be one of the best of the best. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Neil Heidi was that classmate. In fact, there were two really good cellists in my school. One became a neurologist and one was Neil. And Neil became and still is a member of a world-class quartet, a recorded artist many, many times, and head of postgraduate programs, the Royal Academy of Music in London. That is truly one of the most prestigious music institutions in the world. And the Academy has been his home now for decades. The amazing thing about working at a place like the Academy is you are working with some of the most talented people from around the whole world. So it's, it's a really exciting place to be, and I've stayed there almost as long as I've been a cellist now. Neil started playing when he was nine, but I was really interested in understanding how is it that you stay on the path? Because most of us don't stay on a path that shows up at 17. I mean, Andrew Duggins, bless him, he went off and studied medicine, understood how brains worked, became that neuroscientist. I have no idea whether Andrew Duggan still plays the cello. So how did Neil make the decision? I think I remember having various conversations with people where I was playing off in my head, am I going to, am I going to jump for the thing that I love doing and that I think I might not be able to get away with? Or am I going to do something sensible? I'm going to be a lawyer or something, you know, which, which is the kind of stuff that I might have done. And I think I was a bit scared but I think also it was a case of, I can't see anything it would make more sense for me to do, so I'll just go this way and see what happens. But this is not like joining holy orders, where you, know, you sign up a child and you're theirs for life. Even when accepted to study at the academy, Neil still had his doubts, questions about who he could be and what was exactly his path as a musician. Finding my own path, I don't think I was really confident with that until the you know, very end of my 20s. You know, you might be talented early, but whether that's the direction you can follow, that's another question altogether. As my nieces and nephews get out of their teens, I've been encouraging them to think about their 20s as a decade of discovery and exploration. 
I mean, your brain is still reprogramming itself to be an adult's brain. And this is the time to test your hypothesis about who you really are by engaging with reality and starting to claim agency. And so too with Neil. You yourself have to set the agenda for what you want to do, that this it isn't about slotting into something that somebody else provides. Right. And I think one of the things, you know, I felt like a talented kid. I left Australia when I was 19. I just started to come to London to study. Right. And you arrive and there are loads of really good people. Right. You know, and and then you realize, oh, but I'm still, I'm, I'm in the pack. You know, it's yeah. okay. But, but then realizing that Actually, you know, the ones who are going to absolutely step outside the pack, you know, the the, the few in a generation, yeah. well, there are a tiny number of those. Yeah. Um, very, very few of us will be that person, and I'm not one of those people. Right. Um, but you realize that that doesn't matter. But I think that's the thing that you don't know when you're, when you're 21. Right. Um, and I teach a lot of the people who are at that age and are trying to work out you know what what does this mean do i need to be the best in the world to have a career um or can i be you know in in whatever that very talented really high achieving but not the one or two yeah one of the many things that you do at the royal academy of music is to manage postgraduates and help them what have you learned from being that guide and mentor and coach to these young talented people um uh, that there's no one way to do anything um, That's wonderful. Know, yeah. Genuinely, you know, yeah. that, that, you know, 200 people arrive at the beginning of the year fresh and you've got 200 routes through what's mm. going to come out to the other side, which is from a managerial point, quite complicated. Yeah. And actually from the, the point of view of the individual, it's, it's, it's really complicated because nobody can show you how to do it. Right. And the thing I end up saying to the students, and it took me yeah, and it'll be relevant to the reading that we'll that we'll do. But it took me forever to learn this. But you have teachers as musicians, but the teachers and the teachers can can pass on bits and pieces of information, but what they can never do is show you how you can learn. Right. You have to learn how you learn for yourself. And and of course it helps to be in an environment where you've got other people where you might be able to steal some ideas from or, yes. or measure yourself up against. But actually that whole business of how you find out who you are, no one can do it. Yeah. What have you come to understand about yourself and how you learned? I'm, I love to play music. You know, the, <laughs> the, actual, the doing of music is incredibly important to me. Right. But I realized that what's really important about it isn't the music. Right. No, it is actually, it's the doing of this thing which connects you with other people. You know, right. both the people who are in the room listening to you or the people you're working with. A lot of because a lot of my life is working with three other people in a string quartet. Yes. And and I probably don't agree with them on anything <laughs> in life. You know, we, we, yes, we'll do this concert, you know, that kind of stuff we can agree on. Yeah. But but what I love about music is it is it provides a framework in which we can interact together really creatively and positively. And the fact that we wouldn't see things in exactly the same way becomes provocative and interesting. And right. then, of course, I'm interacting with all of these incredible musicians from the past. So it's the sense that there's this living, breathing thing we can do. And yet what it is, is a way of actually just, just connecting. Yeah. How do you feel 
your sense of yourself or your understanding of yourself as a musician has evolved over time? Again, maybe, I don't know whether this sounds strange, but I feel much more aware of being part of a, a big world. Nice. Um, yeah. So again, it's this connectedness with people and uh, there are all sorts of ways I think about it. But I tell a story for the, the new students who come to us at the academy because I find this helpful. And I've got, I've got millions of stories to tell. <laughs> Telling stories is actually how you make sense of your, your or it's how I, I make agree. sense of my existence. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I had two especially important cello teachers in my life. And at the point I studied with them, they were, they were not young men anymore. They right. were, they were, they were getting on. Um, <laughs> they're both dead now, so I can say, <laughs> um, Although one didn't die until relatively recently, and this was my Australian teacher at the point that I was in my last years of school, Nelson right. Cook, who'd been a student of Pablo Casals in Prague in the 1950s. So, so I think often that my grandfather cello teacher through Nelson is Casals, who was born in 1874. Wow. A really long time ago. And then through William Pleath, who I then went to study with in London, he went at 16 to study with Julius Klingel in Leipzig. Klingel was born in 1859. Wow. And the funny thing is, those people, those men, Klingel and um, and Casals, who will, you know, maybe Casals is a name people know. Klingel, unless you're a cellist, no one's ever heard of him. <laughs> um, but they're, they're really important people in my life. Right. They're grandfathers I never met, but they're grandfathers whose existence is totally real to me yeah. through the teachers I had. And, you know, in a, in a way more real than my great grandmother, who I knew and, you know, died when I was 13 or something. Um, so I, I find that, I, I think that's one of the things that really excites me about the world that I live in. Yeah. What I love about this, Neil, is I, I've literally just before we uh, did this interview, I recorded um, the introduction to another interview, a friend of mine called Eric Klein. And he is a spiritual teacher, he has a guru, and he is part of a lineage. And he can trace his learning back. And that's an important part of what he does, as is a sense that he is creating the, the progression of that lineage. He is in the middle of it. He's not the end of it. Um, do you have a sense of your lineage? Like, not just going back, but looking forward? Uh, yeah, in, in lots of ways. And I think it's one of the things about getting to the stage of life that you and I are in now, where where... <laughs> Where you realize I mean, very, very young men well, with, exactly. with vast, vast wisdom at the same time. <laughs> you realize maybe, maybe it's time where the, the egg timer is being flipped. Right. And, and you, and you're looking slightly differently. And, and I, I think I'm very aware when, when you're, when you're really striking out for the first time, you know, you're, you're trying to grab the baton from someone. Right. And you're aware that that's the job. And yeah. then there comes a point where you become really aware that you're passing things on. Yeah. And yeah. And I think actually that I I made a really interesting, well, I think it's a really interesting decision, but I worked out really early on in my musical life, I loved teaching, but I didn't want to teach the cello at all. Right. That I would, I you know, I gave lessons sometimes and I, I still do the odd, you know, I do all sorts of coaching, but, but when I sit in the room with another cellist, I'm terrible because I want to play. Um, <laughs> I want to listen to them play. And I, I, maybe that's a very selfish thing. Yeah. But I realize, so that side of me speaks through the music I make. Yes. But but I want to be in the room with people to talk about what it means right. to, to be part of, of 
of this big world to be somebody whose world exists in in craft making yeah which is which is where the where the book will come in today yeah and actually to understand that to understand what a um you know a high calling maybe that's saying too much but i think what i realized was you could do this thing that is playful and engaging and fun and and beautiful yeah but that also it could be deadly serious and there'd be something about it that that you'd feel was really important to leave to the future so i don't know whether that answers your question yeah i think it does uh, i'm not even sure what i meant by the question it just showed up in my yeah. head and what's interesting as you say this neil is you know one of the things i've been sitting with and trying to explore a little bit is what does it mean to step into eldership becoming an elder yeah and um because i feel like i'm perhaps in a similar but different way to you kind of going actually it's it's less about me taking a baton now and it's more about um finding ways of opening opportunity for others um a final question before i, I ask you to introduce your book how has your sense of ambition shifted over the years the funny thing is i've never felt of myself as an ambitious person right that, it, that's not been a driver for me yeah um I remember turning 30 and I saw somewhere you'd, you'd, you'd done a podcast where you talked to someone about this. And, and so it struck me. I remember turning 30 and, and then thinking, there are quite a lot of things I've probably failed to do at, <laughs> at 30. And then I must have then had them as kind of ambitions. Right. But, but I tend to think always of the projects I want to do or the, I the ideas I want to follow through and... I feel really, really fortunate that I've been in a position where I've been able to do a lot of those things. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so th it's, it's not for me about goals, but about processes. Yeah. And if I'm Beautiful. able to do the processes I want, I'm going to be a happy man. I, you know, there's so much wisdom in, I mean, I, I, I'm going to end up violently agreeing with you on a lot of stuff I can tell because. I, I try and structure my life to go, what's my best guess at the next big project I should be taking on? That speaks to the impact I want in the world, but also the best expression and the best edge of myself that I'm trying to explore. And I'm not quite sure if it's right, and there's probably other options as well, but you know, I take a best guess and then I commit to a process and then the outcome, you know, the cards fall as they fall. It so, feels so, like a nice way to live to me, but the, the funny thing is the elder thing I've been thinking about it a lot because one of the one of the nice things I I work in in two kind of overlapping worlds where there are quite a lot of whether it's gatekeepers or there's a sense of you know control about what the right things to do would be mm. and one of the nice things about being a bit older and having got into a position where you have some authority or what whatever we might call it is you can kind of speak truth to how lazy a lot of the ideas you know a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of the things that are treated as important can be yeah and and it seems to me that a really important thing for for people slightly later on because i think when you're 30 you can't do that you just yeah. come across as annoying and rebellious <laughs> but, but if you do it later then right. then think well you know he, he must have got the rebellion out of his system <laughs> by now right yeah it's not just it's not just being contrary for the sake of being contrary or making a name it's exactly. a more it's a more grounded thoughtful response perhaps yeah neil you you've you've hinted at the book you've chosen a few times what is it what have you picked for us it's it's called the craftsman 
And right. it's by Richard Sennett, who's a sociologist and about whom I know surprisingly little. <laughs> um, so so I, I really admire this book. I've not read anything else by him. Right. Uh, and I often think I should, and life ends up feeling short. Yes. Um, I love this book for a number of reasons. And and one is I work in I work in quite an esoteric area of of culture, you could say. Yeah. Um I'm surrounded by people from around the world who work in the same area. So it starts to look normal to us that <laughs> people operate like this. Right. And I, I enjoy reminding people um what's normal about it and what's not normal. You know, right. it's it's a very strange thing to do. Yes. Um, but what I love about this book uh, is is Senate takes a very wide view of what he thinks a craftsman is. He's got a very um, open view to the sense that that anyone can be a craftsman if they choose to be. Yep. Um, and I I quite like that because there's a sense that this is that there are closed worlds everywhere. Yes. Um, and and I find it a helpful way of thinking about what. I do in a way that might relate to other people without having to go through the sum of the detail of what does it mean that you're using the third finger on the D string here to play that note, whereas someone else is using the second finger, um, <laughs> right. which which can feel very important at certain points in how I'm thinking, but to a wider audience is meaningless. Yeah. So well, I'm excited to hear what you've got to read for us. Let me let me formally introduce you, Neil Heidi, um, professor, academic at the Royal Academy of Music, cellist. School schoolboy friend of mine reading Richard Sennett's book The Craftsman. Neil, over to you. Thank you. Um, so this is a, a section that he, that he heads. He's, he calls it fractured skills, and it's about mm. hand and head divided. And I, I'm just going to make an apology. He's a very good raconteur, Richard Sennett, and he tells lots of wonderful stories. But I've chosen a bit without a wonderful story because it's got an idea that I thought it might be fun for That's us. Fantastic. To so yeah, great. So, if you hear this and then think, oh, I'd, you know, I'm not sure I want to read the book, it's full of great stories. The modern era is often described as a skills economy, but what exactly is a skill? The generic answer is that skill is a trained practice. In this, skill contrasts to the coup de foudre, the, the lightning bolt of sudden inspiration. The lure of inspiration lies in part in the conviction that raw talent can take the place of training. Musical prodigies are often cited to support this conviction, and wrongly so. An infant musical prodigy like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart did indeed harbor the capacity to remember large swatches of notes, but from ages five to seven, Mozart learned how to train his great innate musical memory when he improvised at the keyboard. He evolved methods for seeming to produce music spontaneously. The music he later wrote down again seems spontaneous because he wrote directly on the page with relatively few corrections, but Mozart's letters show that he went over his scores again and again in his mind before setting them in ink. We should be suspicious of claims for innate, untrained talent. I could write a good novel if only I had the time. Or, if only I could pull myself together, is usually a narcissist's fantasy. Going over an action and again and again by contrast enables self-criticism. Modern education fears repetitive learning as mind-numbing. 
Afraid of boring children, avid to present ever different stimulation, the enlightened teacher may avoid routine, but thus deprives children of the experience of studying their own ingrained practice and modulating it from within. Skill development depends on how repetition is organized. This is why in music as in sports, the length of a practice session must be carefully judged. The number of times one repeats a piece can be no more than the individual's attention span at a given stage. As skill expands, the capacity to sustain repetition increases. In music, this is the so-called Isaac Stern rule, the great violinist declaring that the better your technique, the longer you can rehearse without becoming bored. There are eureka moments that turn the lock in a practice that has jammed, but they are embedded in routine. As a person develops skill, the contents of what he or she repeats change. This seems obvious. In sports, repeating a tennis serve again and again, the player learns to aim the ball different ways. In music, the child Mozart, aged six and seven, was fascinated by the Neapolitan sixth chord progression in root position. A few years later, he became adept in inverting the shift to other positions. But the matter is also not obvious. When practice is organized as a means to a fixed end, then the problems of the closed system reappear. The person in training will meet a fixed target but won't progress further. The open relation between problem solving and problem finding, as in Linux work, builds and expands skills, but this can't be a one-off event. Skill opens up in this way only because the rhythm of solving and opening up occurs again and again. These precepts about building skill through practice encounter a great obstacle in modern society. By this, I refer to the way in which machines can be misused. The mechanical equates in ordinary language with repetition of a static sort. But thanks to the revolution in microcomputing, however, modern machinery is not static. Through feedback loops, machines can learn from their experience. Yet machinery is misused when it deprives people themselves from learning through repetition. The smart machine can separate human mental understanding from repetitive, instructive, hands-on learning. When this occurs, conceptual human powers suffer. Neil, that's great. There's a lot to dig into here, but I'm curious to know what is the important idea that's at the heart of this passage for you? Um, that, that repetition used in the right way, that repetition is a really powerful thing. Um, and and that there's a real danger in us assuming that repetition is somehow you know mechanical or or lazy. Uh, music's really interesting in this front because because music repeats a lot. Yeah, uh, I I know poetry does, and and but most of the arts don't. That's but true. There, there must be something inherently interesting about repetition. Yeah, uh, and you know, partly music's dip. You know, you can't easily hold it in your head. So, so hearing something repeated afterwards, but the whole notion that repetition might be interesting, and and you could develop a relationship with it that would let you discover things. That's why I read that. Yeah, it's really powerful, and that is an interesting observation that you know in music you have these you know repeating motifs that you know occur as you listen to a symphony or whatever it might be, yeah. um, or a movement within a symphony. Um, in a way that doesn't really occur in in other in other 
forms of art. Um, how do you help others grow as they do the work, knowing that there's this tension between a, a, a thirst for novelty and the power of you know repeating movement so that it becomes fluid and ingrained and habitual? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've, I feel I have to argue or defend against, I, I think there's been a sense that the kind of conservatoire in which I teach is a place where you know students are trained to be um, you know clever robots, <laughs> and I, I think that's not the case at all. But it's interesting yeah. that there's a misunderstanding from outside that there might be an element of that in there. And then, so partly, I want to I want to answer those people and explain what kind of training is going on. So I'll come yes. to that in a moment. But I also want to help those of us who are learning. And I remember really clearly my early days and by early days I, I would say the first 10 years of playing my instrument and I wouldn't say I I hated practicing but I found practicing quite hard work yeah and I would I you know I'd set a clock and, and I think okay well if I want to be serious about being a musician I should do at least an hour and a half's practice and you think well someone else says they're doing four so, <laughs> so I, I say an hour and a half so if I, I'll set the clock for an hour and a half and I'll basically tie myself yes. to the chair and do it and I found it hard no. because because I I realized it's very easy to sit there and just think, well, the job is just you make it better. Right. And 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 even if you define the goals of that quite well, it it that's not very interesting. Right. What's now, if I if I start a practice session after I finish talking to you, um, my problem will be working out when to stop unless something else stops me. Right. And once I get inside that space, I love being in the space <laughs> because there are so many ways it can now go, and right. I will be interested in following them through and seeing where it happens. And of course, what I'm trying to communicate or help other people discover is that the repetition that practices can offer you that space rather than one where you've got a predefined goal, which is one of the things Senate talks about, the danger of thinking we're just trying to achieve that. And we'll hack away at this until we arrive at it. Yeah. And even if you do achieve it, then what have you actually achieved? Well, yeah. maybe not much. So, so it's about it's about defining. But the language I use is discovering the goal through the work. Uh, you know, it 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 hearts to the the and Anders Ericsson idea of ten thousand hours, which Malcolm Gladwell then made popular in Outlier. Yeah, and it's like the thing is, it's not ten thousand hours. It's the nature of the practice in the ten thousand yep. hours. Exactly. And um, if you if you're just trying to you know notch up the time, then you look like what I looked like when I was playing piano for my obligatory thirty minutes, which is like I'm just enduring this. Yeah. <laughs> There's no sense of learning. I'm just trying to get across the finish line so I can stop playing piano because I'm hopeless <laughs> at it. Um, but what have you learned? about what's required to create that practice space as, let's call it sacred space. I don't think of practice as a sacred space. Okay. Uh, I, I like to think of practice as a workshop. You know, yeah. I, I, I go in, I have my tools, I shuffle about and, and, and I, I play with things. Um, I do think of the performance as a kind of sacred space. 
Yes. You know, the people, people give you their time. I love the fact you do this podcast as something that people, people would have to listen to it. Right. You can't, you can't just quickly go and work out, oh, what's the key point in this episode? No. Books are great. Because I don't know what the key point is. Either. <laughs> I'm like, it's an unfolding of a conversation, which I love. Yeah. yeah. But that in itself requires a kind of, there's a ritual of engagement that, that a listener has to, has to go into to do yeah. that. Whereas with a book, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I read very fast. I'm a skim reader. I find it very easy to process what's in a book fast. And if, what I love about a performance space, whether it's a podcast or a musical performance, is that it's a space where you have to give in to the time that's in there. Yeah. And that that's for great. me is a kind of sacred thing. Yeah. But the working space is is really, you know, that's very down to earth. That's nuts and bolts right. and just moving things around. It's for me, it's not inspiration either. I'm just interested in in uncovering what I can. Yeah. In music, we often in classical music, it's, you often use the word rehearsal to describe right. what is done. So if my string quartet gets together, we would say we have a rehearsal before the concert. And that's a really lousy word, I think, <laughs> because it implies that you already know what you're doing. You know, you're, you're right. rehearsing, you're going through it. I, I think of every meeting we have as a workshop. We're going to go yeah. through and, and, and we, we don't believe in determining the goals. It, right. I think a con conductor has to do that a bit because if somebody's not hasn't decided already in advance, so that that kind of working situation is a different one. Yeah, but I, I want to ask you in a minute about what it means to work with three other people in a quartet. But before I go there, just in this conversation about what practice means, what's the relationship between your 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 mind and your hand? Um, this is the other reason I love the Senate book is, is that he wants to show that, that mind and hand in, in, in real craft, you know, masterly craftsmanship. And he's very clear. It's not a gendered word. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, you know, it's worth saying that, but, but in that, um, the, the, the two operate in such a way, you don't know where the distinction you know, between them lies. Right. And that is for me, one of the most amazing things about being a musician, I realize I can literally think through my hands, my arms, yeah. as well as, as in my brain. And, and that the way that those interact is so rich and complex. I think it's, there is a kind of, um, it's the opposite of an out of body experience. Uh, it would be whatever, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to use any of the normal language we might use, but when, when working properly, both in the workshop space and in the on-stage space, yeah. there's that sense that actually because you've done something for long enough, the, the roots through it can be discovered by the physical parts of your body right. as well as the mental ones. That's and so that's interesting. Just yeah, that's an amazing feeling. And the great thing is, it gets better as you get older. <laughs> I think and that's I don't true. think that's much in life that feels like that. I, it's inevitable that that certain things, certain skills, will diminish. Yeah. But I love the fact I work in a field where a lot of the musicians I've most admired have been really quite old when they've done their best work. That's great. I notice because if I if I would claim a craft, it would be as a writer, and um, in a similar way, I've now written 
a bazillion sentences in one context or another, stuff at university, you know, I mean, essays at school, sure, but kind of writing in a way to find a voice, to have yep. an opinion, to teach an idea or show an idea. And I feel like if I have a claim to mastery now, it's something along the lines of I have a nuanced understanding of what an edge is and what might evolve. And I kind of trust my keyboard or my pen, whatever I'm using to write, to have it show up there rather than me trying to out, you know, overly figure it out in my head. Although sometimes I'm doing that as well. Sometimes I'm thinking about what's the, what's the structure to this that would be reassuring and disruptive or whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. So what you're saying rings very true to me, Neil. Because it is interesting. It's about the, you know, the flight time or you know, the, the 10,000 hours, but the 10,000 of engaged hours. And yes, of course, you know, it's a lot more than 10,000 <laughs> by the time we're, we're wherever we are now. I spend a lot of time talking to people. I much prefer talking to writing. I think I, I do write and I need to write as part of what I do. But I feel very distinctly that that's something I have not mastered in the same kind of way. Right. I think it's I spend less time doing it and I feel less embedded in it. So it's quite interesting to be aware yeah, that of, is interesting. of what hap you know, what what real mastery feels like. I've done the same with my cello career. I put aside the cello and I'm just focusing on writing for now. <laughs> now, let me shift it a little bit and ask you this. What have you learned about collaboration, co-creation, workshopping with your three colleagues in the quartet? Um, I, this might sound a bit provocative, but I, I, I did quite a bit of writing on collaboration uh, 15 years ago or something like that because people hadn't done much of it. And in my field, academically, it's been a big topic for the last 15 years right. or so, um, which is nice. But I think people have a weirdly utopian view of how a collaboration works. You know, that, that, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's flowery and nice and people get together and <laughs> they, I, I, it's an intertwining I, of souls. Like, yeah. And, and it? I, I don't think of it like that at all. And I don't see yeah. it as negative image of that either. I don't think it's all about battling for creative space. And I think it's about disagreement and misunderstanding a lot. Mm. And, and then finding us, finding a space that enables you to move forwards. And, and I just love working in an environment where one needs to grapple a bit and then discover yeah. something. And then kind of agree together to run with it for whatever for for whatever reason. I think often one doesn't really know why you agree that something works. Yeah. But I love that process. Sometimes in conversation, disagreements start to break or crack the relationship. How how do you you nurture relationships that have the resilience and grace and understanding to have disagreements not be a force of destruction? That's a really good question to which I'm not sure I know the answer, but yeah, well, I know I don't know the answer, uh, but it is at some level, it must be something to do with respect, you know, or, mm. or, or love for others, but Okay, with the, with the the three people I'm I'm playing with in the quartet, you know, one one needs to respect who they are as musicians, right? Um, and at that point, then if you don't agree, well, that's 
that's not a problem because you're you're working right. you're still working from a standpoint where there's there's a valuing of something always there in place. Right. Uh, I don't know how how one forms that. I can think of all sorts of situations where that might not be in place and makes it difficult. You know, I I also work in a managerial position at work and. Yep. Um, you, know, you don't always have those kind of things to rely on. Right. Um, I think I like disagreement. I I think I like <laughs> I think I like the fact that I feel that there tends to be honesty there, and yeah. and I can respect that even if I don't always necessarily well, respect I, where it's coming from. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm he hearing, perhaps I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, is your disagreements tend to be on the level of the music rather than the level of the person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and there are probably many disagreements on the level of the person too. Right. But in a way those don't matter because because actually you know, it, it is a it's a job that yeah. we're doing. Yeah. That we're choosing yeah. to do together and it's an entirely free choice arrangement. Yeah. That's beautiful. Neil, it's been such a great conversation. I'm now wanting just to come to London so you and I can go out for dinner together and kind of great. talk talk for hours. Um, but I'm wondering as a final question, um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us? I'm just wondering, I'm wondering how one, how one knows one loves doing something. <laughs> this is the thing that, um, there's a story I'll tell, and this yeah, is a story I, I tell, I tell the students, but um, as musicians, we 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 tell ourselves one kind of story. Almost every music student will will be told this at some point, and that is, you, you know, the musician have to decide how the music's going to go and make the instrument do the thing that you decide. You know, right. you're the boss of the instrument. Um, and and in an interview, um, uh, Natan Milstein, great Russian violinist who uh, probably died at the end of the eighties. But uh, he's he's asked by another wonderful musician, you know, if you had to give advice to a young player today, what would you say? And he goes, well, you know, think with your head. You know, so, so he begins with exactly this piece of advice, slightly later in the conversation, which they're having over dinner. I I, yeah. I love it. It's a very um, Jewish men in New York having a conversation <laughs> over, over dinner kind of interview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and later later in the conversation, it comes back, and he goes, he says. You know, I think I love the violin more than I love music, which oh. is why I've been able to play so long. Right. And and it comes across as such a beautiful thing that he says it. Yeah. Um and uh, the fact that he's contradicting in a way the thing he said, which is which is always that in a way the music comes first and goes mm. but he recognizes there's something in that relationship and there's a lovely film of Casals, the great cellist with the president of Israel in the early seventies. Right. And he has his cello next to him. He says, um, you know, I've played this cello for more than 50 years. You know, I love him and he loves me. <laughs> and, and he looks at her, um, I've forgotten her name, uh, Golda something. Golda Meyer. Yeah. yeah, Golda Meyer. And he, he looks at her and he goes, yes, just in case she thinks he's being artifarty or it's a conceit. Yeah. He goes, no, I mean that. Yeah. And I don't know how we really discover these things in life. But it feels to me really important that we know somewhere. So I don't know whether that's something <laughs> that wasn't said, but but we need to love it. Yeah. Whatever 
whatever it is. I hated practicing the piano. Mrs. Birmingham, my teacher, was ferocious and utterly uncomprehending of my profound lack of musical ability. Still, mum made me do half an hour, practice three or four times a week, and for me, it was just getting to the end of those 30 minutes. There was no flow, there was no joy, there was no ecstasy, there was only misery, there was only grind. I loved then what Neil said about returning to practice, not as something that's a grind, nor as something that's meant to be magical or spiritual, but as a workshop. I mean, I'm holding that insight even as I write this script. This is me practicing being a writer, playing with words and stories and rhythms, honing my voice, both the one you're hearing, but also my voice on paper, thinking about how I'll read this later on, and the experience I want you, the listener, to have. As you may have heard me say before, my worthy goal, that's the big idea from the How to Begin book, my worthy goal is to be a writer. And the essence of that, I realize as I type away on this at seven o'clock in the morning, sipping an espresso, is to turn up to my workshop, figure out the problem that I want to solve, and to start practicing. It's all practice. If you enjoyed my conversation with Neil, I certainly did, not least because he's somebody I've known for, what is it, 40 years, close to now. Um, let me suggest two other interviews as part of the um, two pages with MBS catalog, which is now well over 100 episodes, probably closer to 130. Um, Madeline Dore, How to Be Alive. She is a creative. She writes so beautifully about what it means to create. And I love how she's also on a journey to figure out her own creative spirit. And we talk about that in our conversation. And then Jay Akunzo, who is a podcaster, he gave me the idea of you make a podcast, the goal is to be somebody's favorite podcast. <laughs> not the best, not the most popular, but the, somebody's favorite. That's what I'm trying to do for you. I'm trying to find a podcast that you go, when this comes out Tuesdays, I want to make sure I'm listening to this episode. So Jay Kunzo, that episode is called Making What Matters Most. If you'd like to learn more about Neil, you know, he, he works at the Academy of Music, so you, know, you can always find him on the web pages there. But he does have his own website, neilheidi.com. I'll spell it for you because it's slightly tricky. N-E-I-L-H-E-Y-D-E.com. He's actually releasing a new disc, even as we speak, early February 2023. Um, so you'll be able to track that down as well. Um, it's called Digital Memory and the Archive. So a, a really, as he tends to do, a really creative collaboration with another artist. That just leads me to say thank you for listening. Always appreciative. Thank you for the love you give this uh, show, uh, whether that's through a uh, review or through passing an episode on. That's it for me from now. Goodbye. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>